0: Good morning. Uh, my name is Dan, and uh, one of the pastors here along with Lou at Portsford Church. And uh, we're going to begin, as Lou's uh, said, this new series today on serving. Uh, but before we do, let's just pray again together. Lord, please help us to hear what you have to say to your church this morning. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. As we've just sung, shape and fashion us into your likeness. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen. So we begin a short series of three messages this morning, exploring the theme of growing servant hearts. Growing servant hearts. Why is that important? How do we grow servant hearts? And how do we keep our servant hearts growing? Alongside this series, we're recommending a book called Serving Without Sinking. And uh, that's available from the Welcome Desk at a bargain discounted price. If you like sniffing out a bargain uh, of five pounds, uh, you can pick up a copy there. We've got a number. Haven't got millions, uh, but uh, if we run out, then there's a list. You can put your name down and we'll order some more. But they're available at the Welcome Desk uh, for five pounds. Uh, if we're encouraging people to read this. And one of the main points of this book is summarized in this quote. Christianity, it turns out, has nothing to do with our service at all. The only way to get our service of Jesus right is to realize that supremely we don't serve him, he serves us. Christianity, it turns out, has nothing to do with our service at all. The point being made is not that we don't serve. It's clear that we must. But rather the point of this book is that servant is not who we are. Servant is not my identity. This book explores what Jesus meant when he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's from Mark chapter 10. And we thought a bit about those words of Jesus back in May uh, here at Portswood. But as we begin this series, we're going to see a view this morning of Jesus' service, a view which might shock and humble us, a view which might lead us to worship. And we'll also see how, as part of our response of worship, Jesus' service shapes ours. So let's get into our passage for this morning. As we said, it's the New Testament letter to the Philippians. It's in chapter 2, page 1179, if you're using a Blue Church Bible. Page 1179. It would be great if you could follow along. Chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll begin by focusing on Jesus and his service as we read from verse 5. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you've been a Christian any length of time, there's every chance you just read those verses with a dangerous familiarity. That's certainly an issue for me anyway. We're all familiar, we're so familiar, those of us who've been Christians for a while, those of us who've been Christians for a while are so familiar with these words that they just fall off our tongues without having the impact on our hearts they ought to have. Last month, we had a staff team retreat, and someone shared an image with me, to which my initial reaction was was an action, reaction of shock. The image was a printed photo, showing two bloody hands joined together at the wrists by a large nail. And as I looked at the photo, I, I was a little relieved to realise that it was just a photo of a wooden sculpture, albeit a starkly realistic sculpture. I couldn't find that image online to share with you. You'll be probably thankful for. It's perhaps a good thing. But but maybe, though, you react in a similar way to this painting. It's called It Is Finished by an artist called Chris Hyam. Uh, although you, you probably don't react like that to it because our projectors are a bit rubbish. But... Um, Uh, This image, if you could see it, you could be easily mistaken for thinking you're looking looking at a piece of meat, a slab of meat. But look closely, and you realise it's a painting attempting to depict the bloody body of Jesus hanging on a cross. Why am I subjecting you to this? Well, as I reflected on my reaction to the photo, that sculpture showing those two hands nailed at the wrist, covered in blood, I realized my shock showed me something that I'd forgotten. There's something repulsive about the cross. We're uncomfortable about these images because they are uncomfortable. The cross is repulsive. And yet somehow I domesticate it in my mind. I don't know if you do that sometimes too. I domesticate the cross in my mind. Seeing that image made me ask myself, have I domesticated the cross? Have I made the cross palatable? Have I lost the horror of the cross? And so these verses in Philippians chapter 2 ought to take us on a similar journey. A journey where we are appalled. Appalled at what Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, went through. Whether that's the first time we've heard it or, or whether we're hearing it for the thousandth time. So first of all in these verses we see who Jesus is in verse six. Christ Jesus, who became, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus is God. Jesus is in very nature God. He's equal with God. He's always been in very nature God. He's equal with the Father. He is God, the Son. Jesus is and was the eternal Son of the eternal Father. Jesus also, we read, is giving. Verse uh, still here. Being God, Jesus' mindset was not to get and get and get, but to give and give and give. This is what's meant by uh, the um, the verse here. He did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. The God of the Bible is a giving God. Scholar Don Carson writes, the eternal son did not think of his status as God as something which gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve, and precisely because he is one with God, one with this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. Uh, An older... um, uh, commentator wrote, Charles Maul explains, instead of imagining that equality with God meant getting, Jesus on the contrary gave. Gave until he was empty. He thought of equality with God not as for his gain, but as an open-handed spending, even to death. And so we see this clearly in who Jesus became. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The one who is in very nature God, took the very nature of a servant. Jesus became a man. He didn't stop being God, but he humbled himself to become a man. He was still God, but now God in the flesh, the God-man. And there's been loads of talk over what he made himself nothing means. What What it does not mean is that he made himself no longer God. He didn't empty himself of his godness. He didn't empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself, poured himself out. He poured himself out by taking the very nature of a slave. He made himself nothing. He abandoned his rights. He became a nobody. Actually, a servant, a slave. Although we wouldn't put it like this now, that was certainly the view then of a slave, of slaves and nobodies. Everyone knows that. He became a nothing, a nobody. And we're meant to take notice of what kind of man Jesus became. Not some kind of gra- gowned and crowned parading emperor, not your kind of equivalent of the President of the United States with his motorcade and all the flashy, uh, um, sort of, um, all the things that go with this kind of office. He became a servant. He came to serve. He touched the lepers. He washed, washed dirty, smelly feet. He fed hungry crowds. He served. He showed what it is, uh, as verses 3 and 4 put it, to in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And if we, if we're his people, if we're united in Christ, we're meant to do the same, have the same mindset as him. We'll come back to that later. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself to take on a body, to become a man. But that's not all. It's shocking. We ought to be amazed that God would do that. But that's not all. That's not all he did. In fact, what he did next was outrageous. And being found in appearance, verse 8, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death. The one who created life itself, has the power to give life, became obedient to the point of death, laying down his life. As we've already read, not only that, it was death on a cross. And and why is that so special? Well, death by cross was reserved for the scum of the earth, the lowest criminals. It was a cruel, gruesome, bloody instrument of torturous murder. And today we're just not aware of the horror of the cross. It's become this domesticated symbol. Or even if we are aware of it, it's all too easy to forget it. We're not horrified enough when we think about the cross. If uh, we walked into school or college or our workplace wearing a cross on our neck or on our ears, I guess people generally wouldn't give it a second thought. We probably have heard stories of some places where you'd get in trouble for that. But it's... It's, uh, you know, generally it's not a forbidden religious symbol, it's, it's just a cross, isn't it? But if we went into the same school, workplace, uh, college, wearing, I don't know, an image of a, of a suicide bomb vest uh, or an image of a, a van with people being mown down in front of it, that would provoke some kind of response, wouldn't it? Some kind of shock, cultural horror. And in the first century Roman world, the world of, of all this happening, the cross had the kind of symbolic value. It was considered so shameful that, that it was avoided in polite conversation. You didn't talk about the cross. It was considered too horrific a thing for, for Roman citizens to even think about or talk about crucifixion. It was always associated with, with shame and horror, the highest form of punishment, the cruelest form of execution and just reserved for the worst of criminals, the dregs of society. And followed with beat- and had beatings beforehand as well. I'm kind of conscious this isn't a very comfortable thing to hear, but I, I will just read through a kind of description of this, and please hear it in the way that, that it's intended, just to kind of shake us out of thinking about this as a comfortable thing. And this is how uh, someone has described crucifixion. The victim was stripped and tied to a post and then beaten by several torturers. Uh, in the Roman provinces, there were soldiers until they are exhausted or until their commanding officer called them off. For victims who, like Jesus, were neither Roman citizens nor soldiers, the favoured instrument was a whip whose leather, thong- leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other metal. The beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died Eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. It's no wonder that he was rendered too weak to carry his own cross very far. Jesus then went out carrying his own cross again as was common for Roman practice for crucifixion. Each criminal as part of his punishment carries his own cross on his back. This refers to the cross member, the horizontal bar. The condemned criminal bore it on his shoulders to the place of execution where the upright beam of the cross was already fastened in the ground. The criminal was then made to lie on his back on the ground where his arms were stretched out, either tied or nailed to the horizontal bar of the cross. The bar was then hoisted up along with the criminal and fastened to the vertical beam. The criminal's feet were tied or nailed to the upright, to which was also sometimes attached a piece of wood that served as a kind of seat that partially supported the body's weight. And this seat was designed to increase the agony, not relieve it. The criminal could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days, To breathe, it was necessary to push up with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm wrecked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. And this is why the seat prolonged the agony. It it partially supported the body's weight and encouraged the criminal to fight on. Normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died, and this could take days and then they'd leave their rotting bodies hanging there to be devoured by vultures. If there was some reason to hasten their deaths, the soldiers would smash the legs of the subject with an iron mallet. Quite apart from the shock and additional loss of blood, this step prevented the subject from pushing with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Strength in the arms was soon insufficient, and asphyxia followed. They were no longer able to breathe. I guess most of us, all of us, are... Or at least somewhat offended by this uncomfortable with it finding it distasteful I don't find it particularly comfortable reading it out but it is distasteful that's the point no wonder people are horrified at the thought of crucifixion we really ought to be crying out God what are you doing God shouldn't be lowering himself to become a man and God certainly shouldn't be agreeing to die, and God should absolutely, a hundred percent not be anywhere near a bloody Roman cross. It's scandalous. but that's not it. Death by cross was a brutal and most terrible method of execution. But that's not the worst thing about Jesus cross, the worst thing the physical pain was eclipsed by an even greater, more profound pain. Something bigger was going on as Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Those who are familiar with the Bible will be familiar with the language of curse, the curse for sin. And Jesus' death had a purpose. Just dying by itself isn't particularly impressive. But he died for a purpose. He died to bear the curse for sin. So those standing by, watching Jesus be murdered on the cross, it all looked pretty hopeless what possible good could come from this? But there was something unseen going on. Something that the people watching could not observe. Jesus suffered the anger of God for sin. Not for his own sin. He didn't have any. He was the perfect eternal son of God who suffered the anger of God for our sin. He bore a punishment that we deserve. He sacrificed himself as our substitute in our place. Saul, who later became Paul and wrote this letter, Uh, he knew the Bible well and he took this to mean, uh, he took the Old Testament speaking about the curse and about people being hung on crosses uh, to mean that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be the Messiah because the curse of God was on him. He was killed on a cross. And then Saul came to realize that Jesus did die for sin. He did die for the curse, but not For his own. And so Paul writes elsewhere. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. It's why Jesus cried on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And uh, before we even think about our serving. We need to believe this for ourselves. Personally. Individually. There'll be some here this morning who've not yet trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And if that's you, Jesus offers forgiveness to you this morning. He offers you a relationship with himself and his Father, made possible by what he accomplished on that cross. We just need to turn to him, come to him and accept that forgiveness, accept his death on our behalf. Those of us who do believe this truth will perhaps want to bow our hearts in wonder and adoration, and thanksgiving, that the one who is himself God would do this for us. This is who Jesus is. God, who he became man, and what he did. He humbled himself to death on a cross, bearing the curse. And this is the reason God the Father thinks highly of Jesus, his son. Let's go on to verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, as Lou said, Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, because Jesus became a man, because Jesus took the nature of a servant, because Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, God the Father exalted him, lifted him up to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. So in verse 9 to 11, we see what Jesus received. God the Father exalted him, lifted him up to the highest place. Jesus died. His body was removed from the cross. His dead body was laid in a tomb. But Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. He was lifted up. And lifted up not just from death to life, but to the highest place at the right hand of the Father, back where he belongs. And Jesus was given the name above every name. Uh, Sometimes when I thought about this, I've kind of tried to think of ridiculous celebrity names and um, and kind of you know, the sort of ways we talk about names. But there is a danger that I'll go and choose a name that's precious to someone. So I'm going to avoid that. I think, um, but there are some ridiculous names out there, aren't there? Um, but in ancient culture, names are much more important. They weren't just labels. The meaning of a name was significant. It's significant that God gives Jesus the name that's above every name. It's not like when we rename someone with a nickname. This is God assigning Jesus a name that reflects what he's achieved and acknowledges who he is. So what is this name above every name? Is it Jesus? No, he already had that name, although that name shows the importance of names. Before Jesus was born, an angel said, you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because the angel said, because he would save his people from their sins, Jesus means the Lord saves. Names are important, but he already had that name. What's the name above every name then that Jesus has given now? And don't miss this. This is really important. Jesus has given the name Lord, and is, Jesus has is given name, the name Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. This was God's personal name. That he made himself known by in the Old Testament part of the Bible. That I am. I am who I am. The name that's written in our Bible's English translations as, as Lord in the Old Testament with capital letters. Not that he wasn't already Lord. He's always been Lord. But now his eternal identity has been declared publicly. What this means is that Jesus is acknowledged as God himself. Yahweh. Jesus is declared by his Father to have the same status as the Father, the same lordship over the entire universe. And so this should prompt us to ask ourselves a really important question. Do I submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do I acknowledge him to be the Lord of my life? Does he call the shots? Is he in the driving seat? And uh, maybe you're thinking this is all a bit too heavy. But it's serious stuff. It's important. One day, uh, as this passage says, we will all fall on our knees before the Lord Jesus. Our tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow, it says. Every tongue will acknowledge. The question is, will I do it willingly now? Or will I do it in shame and terror when it's too late? We're going to change our focus now, though, to consider what this means for us in the context of our series on growing servant hearts. So we've kind of seen this call to worship a crucified and exalted saviour. And in just the last few minutes, want to think about the need to cultivate a cross attitude. Um, It's really important not to be cross, uh, but to to cultivate a cross attitude. What do I mean by that? Uh, Well, let's pick up from verse 27 of chapter 1. There's another therefore at the beginning of chapter 2, so we need to kind of see what that's there for, and look at verse 27 of chapter 1, and uh, it says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete Uh, Did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, You know the rest; we've read that already. Have that same mindset. There's a lot in these passages about unity uh, and uh, things that kind of about agreeing and uh, being together in things. But what really isn't the emphasis is needing to all think exactly the same thing, uh, agree on every detail of biblical interpretation, maybe. That would be lovely uh, and might be a feature of eternity. Uh, I guess it will. But we shouldn't expect it now, uh, a walk away from from those who can't agree with us on everything. Uh, Sadly, I've known someone to take these verses that way and and kind of end up rather isolated. There's a call to unity in these verses. but, But Paul doesn't leave us to guess what he's calling us to be united in. The mindset that we're supposed to share The thinking that we're called to have in common is nothing less than the mindset of Christ. The thinking of Christ. And before we say that's impossible, how can we be expected to share the knowledge of one who knows everything? Before we even have time to raise that question, Paul launches into the mindset he's referring to. As we've just seen, that mindset which gives sacrificially. And today, some people just need to hear the astonishingly good news of what Jesus has done for you and how he invites you to be reconciled, made right with him, made right with his Father, brought in to share the love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Some people just need to hear that today. But some of us need to reflect on how much our attitude is aligned with this sacrificially giving attitude of Jesus. How much is my attitude Aligned with this sacrificially giving attitude of Jesus. Some of us perhaps need to hear a call to take Jesus more seriously. Would Jesus just come to church each week? Or maybe every other week? Or even less? Maybe loosely linked to a home group? But that's about all I've got time for, thank you very much. How do you think that matches up with the mindset of Christ, which is painted for us here. And yet this is the mindset we're called to have. We need to take him seriously. Take his call to us seriously. Uh, Perhaps you could turn uh, to page one thousand and twelve, please, in the in the Church Bibles. Mark chapter eight. At page one thousand and twelve. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, I think the crowds as well. Mark chapter eight. Page one thousand and twelve and verse thirty-four. Onwards, Jesus says, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give? In exchange for their soul. And uh, these words are so important, they're repeated in Luke 9 and uh, also Matthew chapter 16. The point is, you wouldn't go on the bake off. Well, that, I'm not saying that was in Jesus' mind, but you wouldn't go on the bake off without expecting to do some baking. You wouldn't go on Strictly without expecting to do some dancing. You wouldn't go on X Factor without expecting to sing. Maybe that last one's not quite true. But why on earth would we think we could follow Jesus without expecting to deny ourselves? He made it so clear in his teaching, in places other than the one we just read but there, and in his his example. There aren't two different ways to live as a Christian. Option A, the way of the cross... No, it's all right, thanks. I'll take option B, the comfortable way, the respectable way, the not really going to cost me anything way. There is no option B. That option is a dead end. Only by losing our life, Jesus says, will we truly gain it. Paul writes these words from prison, where he's in chains because of Jesus. He's endured much suffering for Christ already. And is suffering for Christ even as he writes. This isn't theory, academic theory for him. Nor is it theoretical for the church he's writing to in Philippi. Or in verse 30 we read about Epaphroditus who almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. Sure, for some followers of Jesus in some parts of the world, even today, taking up the cross, denying themselves, Will mean literally losing their life as they're executed for confessing Jesus as Lord. Others might just be put in prison or just lose their jobs or homes. Others will give up what they had or could have had, like Anna Armstrong, who we sent recently as a global partner, or like our other global partners around the world. And yet this is about a mindset, an attitude. An attitude shapes all kinds of decisions, whether those choices are on a major scale or on a small scale. This attitude sacrifices a few evenings television watching during the week to prepare material and resources to help our children or young people learn about Jesus on a Sunday morning. This attitude gives up a Saturday morning or an afternoon out to bless the church with a building that's well-maintained, safe and fit for purpose. This attitude stays longer than everyone else to wash up 180 or however many communion cups, and that just knowing the thanks of the Lord, because very few others even notice them doing it. Those are just a few examples which barely scratch the surface of the expressions of this mindset that you could observe in our church community. Not that this attitude is only expressed within the church, this is clearly the primary application of these verses. But the mindset of Christ might also be seen in the office. When you give your time to a colleague to help a colleague with their work even though you know this will mean you have to end up working late or come in early to finish your work. An attitude shapes all of our choices. A mindset is something that's not temporarily picked up and worn and then put down stored back in the cupboard. And so even if we can think of expressions of that mindset in our own lives and service, I imagine that most, or actually all of us, have not mastered what it is to live with this mindset of Jesus consistently. There are times when we walk the way of the cross maybe, but there are times that we hold back from Jesus, times that we keep to ourselves. Don't get me wrong. Even Jesus uh, took time aside from the crowds pressing in to be helped by him. If Jesus needed to withdraw and spend time privately praying to his father, how much more do we? If Jesus, even Jesus needed rest and sleep, how much more do we? But if we examine our hearts, we might just find we have a little more scope for serving than we currently admit to. Doubtless that will cost us more, but that's kind of the point have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I'm uh, not uh, the best person with mirrors. I often kind of forget to look in one until it's too late. And I just have to go out the door and realize I haven't had a shave or something. Um, But as well as being like a door, through which we enter into all the blessings of Christ, blessings in Christ Jesus, the cross is also like a mirror. As well as being like a door through which we enter into all those blessings, the cross is also like a mirror. In which we see how we're doing, how we're looking as followers of Jesus. And we need to have a long, hard look at ourselves in this mirror. Can I see that mindset in me? So I'm going to finish by leaving some space for us to reflect on that. Uh, might the Lord be prompting me to deny myself uh, in some area? What might that be? What might he be calling me to uh, as an expression of the mindset of Christ in me? Maybe that will be getting involved in some ministry, serving in some ministry. Maybe that will be by blessing some, someone who I uh, feel led to bless through, through, bless in some way. Maybe that will be giving financially to something. What is it that the Lord's leading me to as an expression of the mindset of Christ in me? And what's in the way of me doing that thing? How can I act on it this week? Just take a few moments to reflect on that, please. I'm just going to pray and then we'll uh, continue responding by watching a video. Lord, we worship you for your astonishing act of serving us. Lord, as we consider what you did, the things that we've just thought a bit about this morning... We're astonished that you would do that for us. And we don't understand it. But we want to receive all that you have for us and enter into all the blessing that you are pleased to share with us. Lord, thank you. We've also... Seen this morning, though, that there's a call for us to have that same mindset as you. We've remembered your words that if we want to be your disciples, we must take up our cross and follow you. And Lord, we want to take you seriously today, we don't want to just be playing at being Christians. We want to take you seriously and respond in wherever you're leading us to and calling us to. So please help us to know what that is. And we will thank you that we don't do this in our own strength. Thank you that you've not left us alone, that you've promised to be with us by your Spirit, that he is our helper, that uh, as we'll sing uh, uh, in a bit later on, that we can cry out to you to revive us. By your Spirit, when our zeal is abating, when we're uh, drifting in, in uh, when our service is drifting away, Lord, that we can pray to you to revive us and help us, and that we do today. Lord, continue to fashion us into your likeness, that your glory might be seen in us and through us. Amen.